Uh, good morning, Grace Point. My name is Andrew, if I haven't met you already. I'm one of the church family here at Grace Point, and I'm excited to open up the Bible for us today. I want to echo Alan's welcome to you this morning, especially if you're new to Grace Point, especially if you've run 21.2Ks this morning. Shout out to Chong, sub two hours. Good man. My prayer is that today you would meet God in his words. My prayer is that today you would see Jesus more clearly. My prayer is that the Spirit would work in each of us to change us and transform us. Uh, This is the last of our three-week series looking through the Psalms. We've been looking at the beginning of the second book of the Psalms, and I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we've been listening to an album of music, Psalm 42 to Psalm 49, written by the same band, the Sons of Korah. Pretty hectic band name, isn't it? Uh, We've heard lots about lamenting individually and lamenting as a group. But as the album of the Sons of Korah continues, it changes from a minor key to a major key. It goes from downcast and hopeless to upbeat and hopeful. The concert starts within Israel, but then gets broadcast beyond the walls of Israel. And so as we come to Psalm 48 today, I want to start us with a story. About a year ago, Abby and I and two friends of ours went to Vietnam. And it was a blast. Something that we are driven by as we travel is food. Anyone else here driven by food on their holidays? Anyone? You guys are all lying. You guys are all Asian. I know what you guys like. But we didn't want the overpriced tourist food. We wanted what the locals ate. You know, the really good stuff the really cheap stuff. And so we made it a point to go down every back alley of Ho Chi Minh City. And we went down a lot of back alleys, let me tell you. And, we, and when we saw places that were packed full of locals, we looked at each other, gave each other the nod, sat down, and started pointing and gesturing randomly at words that I can't read because I'm not Vietnamese. But we went to this particular restaurant packed full of, rest- packed full of locals, and it was a snail restaurant. Anyone like snails in here? Oh, amen. I hear some amens. Good people, good people. We sat down and we were excited. And as we sat down, we noticed a few things. We were sitting on like the side of an alleyway on a street and on the wall of the alleyway, just opposite the street, there was a massive painting of a guy and this guy was jacked. He had huge muscles, and around his neck, chains and gold. This guy was decked out. And we thought, that's kind of odd. That's kind of strange. And then we looked around at some of the female waitresses and noticed some of them had gold bangles and some of them didn't. Kind of odd, kind of strange. And We looked down further at the alley, and we saw that there was a table at the corner of the alley, and all the guys there were just as jacked as this guy was. And they were also wearing gold. Kind of odd, kind of strange. And then we looked up at the restaurant name and we read the words O.C. Loan. And we realized we had sat down at the restaurant of a loan shark. And the guys in the corner over there, they were his gang members. The waitresses with bangles, probably their wives. And upon realizing that, the big boss himself walked out. And he was jacked in person. And he did have gold, which is exactly when we were given the menus. And we stopped and we looked at each other and thought, maybe this is the last meal we're ever getting. (laughs) Obviously, I'm here, so it's not the last meal. But 
I realized in that moment, I did not feel safe. It's probably my fault for wanting to go down every back alley, but I realized if I'm on the wrong side of this guy, that is completely bad news for me. We expected to eat our meal, and then when we get to time of the bill, they would jack up the prices because we were just some random tourists. And because there's a gang there, we'd probably just have to pay. We definitely didn't feel safe. Now, the story has a happy ending. It was actually the best food in the world. My friends look back at that place as one of their favorite places to eat in all of Vietnam. They didn't raise the prices or anything. In fact, it makes me want to go down even more back alleys. Obviously, I haven't learned my lesson. But I look back at that moment and think about that time when I felt profoundly unsafe. And I realized, if I was someone else in that situation, I'd feel completely different. Imagine if I was one of those gang members at that table. I would feel completely safe, actually. I know this place. I'm here every day. Big guy over there, he's my boss. He's my mate. If anything goes down, he's got my back. I'd feel really safe if I was that guy. Same place, very different feeling. And I tell this story because I think Psalm 48 is asking the same question. Where is safety found? Where is safety found? Oh, it is up there. Good. The experience of feeling unsafe is an unnerving one for each of us. It's a normal and necessary desire for humans to feel and be safe. We even say that we have the human right to feel and be safe, don't we? That's why we feel devastated when people aren't safe, whether it's from war or famine or natural disaster, or even more close to home, when people are bullied in our schools, people are abused at workplaces, relationships when they fall apart and they become unsafe. Safety is really important for humans because without feeling safe, for us, if we don't feel safe, we are always going to be looking over our back, aren't we? We're not going to be open to make relationships. We're not going to try new things. We're going to try to keep everything the same and controllable There's only so much stress and anxiety humans can take before we shut down. We need safety. Foster children remind us that there are times that we can be safe, but not feel safe. We can be safe, but not feel safe. There are times that also we can feel safe, but not be safe. That's the making of a horror movie, isn't it? So, Where is safety found? That's what Psalm 48 is all about. There's an outline in the bulletin you should have had on your seats when you came inside. Pop that open and the Bible. They'll help you to follow along. Today we'll be going through three choir movements as we listen to the song of Psalm 48. How Israel sung Psalm 48, how Jesus sung Psalm 48, and how we can sing Psalm 48 It's a three-part outline that I think can be taken to any psalm in your own reading. What a psalm means for Israel, the original hearers, what it means for Jesus to sing it because it's primarily about him, and so how we can sing those psalms through Jesus. That's the big structure, but there's kind of a mini, smaller structure as well as well. If you look at your first point, to help us follow the melody of Psalm 48, it's kind of an odd song. It sings about God's city, and it's about these three things. We're going to spend most of our time here today, God is in his city. We'll hear about the enemies in his city. 
And then we'll think about the people of his city. Talked enough about structures within structures. Please join me as I pray and let's dive in. Father God, help me to preach this psalm faithfully. Would you bring us to a place where we can not just understand this psalm, but also sing this psalm through Jesus. Help us to make much of Jesus today as we look at your word. Amen. Okay, we are at point one, thinking about how Israel sung Psalm 48. Looking at verses 1 to 3, God is in his city. And it starts firstly with who God is. He is, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. One more. There we go. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. They're the first words of this song. God is big and strong. God is worthy of praise. God is the Lord. He is the King. And so, Israel, God's people, joyfully sings that God is our God. Just as you and I sung earlier, the God of the city, He is our God. Israel joyfully sings because that God is their God. And that God is also, He is in the city that they dwell in. There is a great God in their city, which is exactly what makes Israel feel safe in that city. Where does Israel sing? Well, Israel sings of this city upon his holy mountain. It's an elevated city. And they sing of that mountain as beautiful, the joy of all the earth. Why is it beautiful? Why is it the joy of all the earth? Well, it's explained with a comparison in the second half of verse 2. The sons of Korah compare two different mountains, Mount Zaphon, Mount Zion. Zion is the God of Israel's mountain. That's where God dwells. Zaphon is a mythological mountain where Baal dwells. Baal is the God of the nations, the enemies of Israel. When the sons of Korah describe God's mountain where he dwells, they are directly comparing their God, the God of that city, to the gods of their neighbors. They are saying, your gods here on Mount Zaphon, they are nothing like our God here on Mount Zion. Our God is the great king over all your little gods. Our city is where that great king dwells. That is why Israel's city is beautiful. That's why it's the joy of the whole earth. It is so because God is there. And because God is in her citadels, Israel is safe. And so can feel safe. God has shown himself to be her fortress. When you are in the place where the Lord is, you are in a fortress. You are safe and secure. And so you can feel safe and secure. That's the first stanza of verse 1 to 3. Israel sings that God is in his city, so you are safe. Point 1. Point 2, we look at the enemies of his city. And in verse 4, it begins with a minor chord as a war begins to brew. Multiple kings and armies join their forces and they begin to advance together 
against the city of the great king. A real threat to the safety of the city has appeared, and it is marching down the line. But before we can even begin to wonder if we should feel afraid or not, verse 5 makes it so clear. They saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Upon just one glance of this city, upon the impenetrable city of God, their jaws drop. They are terrified, panicked. They flee the scene. The sons of Korah describe that fear in verse 6. Trembling sees them. Pain like that of a woman in labor. Now the obvious imagery is clear. It's some serious fear driven by some serious pain. But the surprising thing is that this is a common metaphor to use in times of war. But it is only ever used to describe a city that is getting besieged. It describes the fear of the inhabitants when they're getting besieged. But the sons of Korah are reversing that metaphor here. Who's afraid in this situation? It's not the inhabitants of Israel. It's the besiegers that are afraid of getting besieged. They are afraid and terrified of the impregnability of God's city as if God's city will invade them. There are multiple kingdoms and multiple armies shuddering in their boots before they skedaddle back home as they run for safety. But from the eyes of the Israelites, how do they feel? They feel safe. Because where are they? They're in the place of the Lord. The enemies of God against him, the nations, how do they feel? Unsafe, because they rise up against the place of the Lord. And it's precisely because God is in that city that makes this city safe. And verse 7 continues to demonstrate the power of that God. Uh, One more, sorry. Uh, You destroyed them like... One more, Sam. Yep, thank you so much. Uh, You destroyed them like the ships of Tarshish shattered by an east wind. What are the ships of Tarshish meant to represent here? They're meant to represent the kings that oppose God. They were ships that were from far away. They journeyed far distances, so therefore they are strong and sturdy ships. What does God do? God shatters them as he controls the wind. Big, unsinkable ships, Titanic, not unsinkable to God. And the way that God shatters them is meant to be ironic here because the God of Mount Zephon, Baal, What was he the god of? He was the god of storms. Baal is a storm god. What does God use to destroy these ships? He uses this wind. He uses storms. Baal, you say you're in control. God is the one in control. God is the real god, the real king. As easy as it is for God to destroy those ships, as easy as it is to defeat multitudes of kings that rise up against his city. There is no safer place than the place of the Lord. Uh, Just one glance at this place sends the kings of the nation and the armies into terror, running all the way home. Because God is there, because he is the king, there is no safer place than that city. The sons of Korah strum a victorious chord as a shift in perspective happens in the psalm. 
It moves away from the battlefield outside the city gates, and it moves to the song of the people inside the city. As it begins to ring out, we're at point three, the people of his city. And we see this shift in perspective in verse eight. The language of we comes out, which means that's the words of the people who are speaking here. They are in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God. And what they have heard in the past, they've heard that God is a fortress. They know that God is the one who makes people safe. They've heard that growing up. But now, because of this event, they have seen it with their own eyes. They've seen it to be true. They know and see that God keeps them safe. And you can almost hear and feel and see Israel dancing and praising as they shout out, God makes her secure forever. They are singing because that's who is talking about them. They are safe forever because the place of the Lord is safe. They are joyful, exuberant, grateful. They sing and dance all through the nights. And we go even deeper into the city, into the very heart of the city in verse 9. His people are now in his temple. What are they doing? They are meditating on God's unfailing love. They don't want to forget this moment or any moment where God has shown his unfailing love, where God has kept them safe. And so they meditate on God's character. They meditate on his unfailing love in verse 9. But they also meditate on his righteousness in verse 10. He acts not wickedly or unjustly, but rightly and fairly. The city is not kept safe by a powerful or wicked dictator. It is kept safe by a loving and faithful God, a God who is worth all the praise of the world. It is so natural and only right for Israel to rejoice. There is safety and security for Jerusalem and those around, and so they rejoice because God protects their city. He has judged the enemies of his city. Rejoice. There is safety here. And as the tune rises, the crescendo peaks, and the people get up from the temple, and they move from inside the city to go outside the city. The bridge begins and the song beckons the people of his city in verse 12 to walk about Zion. Go, go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels. This song has steps that go with it, audience involvement. It's not just singing that they do here, but it's a full-bodied experience as they parade around Zion. They count her towers, numbering each one by one. They consider well her ramparts. Literally, they set their hearts upon them. They gaze upon the city of their God. Why do they look so intently in this way? The point is this. Just as real as the towers, the citadels, and the walls of the city are, just as real as they are, just as real as God's presence with them, just as real as God's protection of them. They look at the tangible city to remember the intangible presence and promises of God. For them, to know the city well 
is to know the God of the city well. And there's another reason why they are memorizing this as well in the second half of verse 13. They are to know the city well so that they may tell of the city to the next generation. In fact, the tell word here is the same root word for count in verse 12, which means that when they tell the next generation, it has the sense of knowing the city so well that you could literally recount to them how many towers there were. They knew it so precisely because they wanted to make sure the next generation knew. And so knowing so, they would know the God behind those walls, the God who gives safety. And upon the horizon of thinking about the next generation, of thinking about the future, the song ends with one final victorious, confident cry. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. For this generation, the next generation, for every generation, God will be their guide. And as we started, that great God that we have been surveying is not just any old, faraway, distant God. He is our God. Ending just how we begun in verse 1. Great is that God and most worthy of praise. The city is safe because our great God is in it. His enemies flee upon seeing it. His people see instead God's protection and safety. And so they meditate on him and rejoice of how great the God is who protects that city. He has guided and protected them, and he will continue to do so in the future generations. Even to the end, God will be faithful. That is the song that the sons of Korah lead Israel to sing. But it would have been a mistake for Israel just to think that this song was just about the city, that it was just about Jerusalem. Because The psalm, at its core, is about the safety that comes from God in the place of the Lord. Where God is, safety is. And safety steps onto the face of earth as Jesus comes and sings this song. We're at point two, how Jesus sings Psalm 48. Psalm 48 tells us that there is safety in the place of the Lord. When Jesus comes, he himself comes as the place of the Lord. Not a temple, not a city. The place of the Lord now is a person. The events of Christmas, just before Jesus was born, Matthew 1.23 tells us that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. When Jesus sets foot on the earth, he has a name that means God is here, which means God is with us. The place of the Lord where safety and security is found is in the person of Jesus. That's where safety is to be found. In the gospel, we learn that Jesus to his people, uh, Jesus came to his people so that they may be safe, so that his people might take refuge in him. Jesus said to his people, and he says to us today, the words that we opened our service with, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus comes as the place of the Lord, calling people to take refuge in him. Come, find rest for your souls. The security and safety that Psalm 48 sung of in the city of God that the inhabitants were safe and secure because God was there. Jesus does that now. Not some building, not some city, not some castle. Jesus himself is the fortress for our souls. Why is it important? Well, it's because Jesus sees people who are weary and burdened. I'm not sure if this is just me, but my experience is that it is so tiresome to carry the certainty of your future on your back alone. It is so tiresome to have to keep fighting to feel secure and safe. It is so tiresome to be scared and unsure of how you measure up to yourself, your own expectations, of others, of how God sees you. It is so tiresome. What happens in Jesus? He brings real, true rest. Rest from having to carry it all on your own. Rest from having to control all the uncontrollable things of life. Rest from having to earn your own way with God. If you come to Jesus and trust him, you are right with God. And you will never need to question that. That will always be sure. That is the most secure and safe place to be. And it's no surprise that when Jesus walked around with people, people took shelter with Jesus. Social outcasts went to Jesus, demon-possessed, the sick and the poor, those who are hated by society. What does Jesus do? He heals them. He eats meals with them. He embraces them just as the city of God embraced God's people. He treats people with dignity. He lifts up the oppressed. He gives safety to the scared. In Jesus, safety is found. And just like the city of God in Psalm 48, there are those who oppose Jesus. Pharisees and Roman soldiers who come against him. King Herod seeks to kill Jesus, just like the enemies of God. His enemies take him to a fake trial. They torture and they kill him like a criminal. But even upon Jesus' cross, something beautiful happens. See, next to Jesus, there is an actual criminal strung up and crucified beside Jesus. And in the moments of his death, that criminal realizes something amazing. That criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. As he is dying, he recognizes that Jesus is the king of God's city. He recognizes that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. If there is ever an unsafe place, surely it is upon a cross being crucified as you gasp for breath. In the most unsafe place, Jesus offers that criminal safety. Jesus says to that criminal something astounding. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the midst of danger and death, Jesus offers safety. 
In the midst of uncertainty, Jesus offers security because Jesus himself has come to be the place of the Lord. Where is safety found? In Jesus himself. Jesus on the cross sings Psalm 48 as he dies for his people so that they could have a place of refuge and safety. The thing that God, back one, sorry. The thing that God offers today is a place of refuge. The question that I have for you today is, have you taken refuge in the place of the Lord? Have you trusted in Jesus? Because if you do, eternally, you are safe. And interestingly, When we trust in Jesus, the Bible talks of us being in Christ. Just like the citizens of Israel who took refuge inside God's city, they were safe and secure, the one who trusts in Jesus is considered to be in a different location, a different space, a different place, safe in the place of the Lord, safe in Christ. It is only because of Christ that we can sing Psalm 48, We can only sing Psalm 48 because Christ sung it first on the cross for us. We are at our last point, point three, how we sing Psalm 48. Psalm 48 presented a huge picture of safety in the place of the Lord. But those citizens would not be safe unless they were inside the city. In the exact same way, the safety that God offers only comes if we are inside his place. His place is Jesus. There is only safety in Christ. We can only sing Psalm 48 in Christ. But a reasonable question to ask at this point is, what kind of safety does Christ give? Does being in Christ mean that I am safe from disappointment? Does safety in Christ mean that I am safe from harm? Does it mean that I am safe from disease? And the answer to all those questions is no. You are not safe from disappointment or harm or disease. Christians can still get poor, can get fired, can be bullied. Christians still get sick, still get depressed, still get rejected. Christians will be misunderstood, will be mistreated, will still feel unsafe. But in the big scheme of things, while you may feel unsafe, God reminds us that we are safe with God. We are safe in Christ. While you may still get sick and die here, you will live in perfect harmony with God forevermore. While you may be rejected and feel alone, God promises to never leave you. While you may feel downcast and disappointed, there is a constant and secure hope to get through each day. It's such a stabilizing, helpful force to remind myself when I feel unsafe that even though I don't feel it, I'm actually in the safest place I could ever be. I'm in Christ. That doesn't make me turn off my reason and rationale because there really are unsafe situations on this earth that we should flee from that are horrible and shouldn't happen to anyone. It doesn't suddenly make bad things or bad places good, but it does change the way that I see things. When I go to meet someone 
and I'm afraid of how I'm going to be treated, I can remember, I am in Christ. I am safe. Even if they reject me, God always keeps me. When I go into something I'm unsure and anxious about, I can remember, I am in Christ. I am safe. Even though I don't know the future, I do know the one who holds it, and he is good. When I go to a situation that seems beyond me, I can remember, I am in Christ. I am safe. Even though I'm not sure what to do, he promises to help me. And he promises that even when things go bad, at the end of all days, he will make it right. And it will be all right. You know what would be a crazy thing for the Israelites in Psalm 48 to do? When the kings of the earth came to gather together to besiege them, they might think, gosh, there's a lot of kings out there. A lot of armies together against us. They look pretty big and pretty strong. Maybe I should leave the city I'm in and join them. It seems far safer there than here in this city. Friends, can I encourage you? That would be crazy talk. Take refuge in Christ and Christ alone. Outside the walls of Christ, there is nowhere else safe. It is only in Christ that there is safety. Two more quick things that are quick ways that we can sing this song in Christ before we finish. The first thing is know Jesus well. Just as the Israelites in verse 9 meditated on God's unfailing love, we are to meditate on Jesus' unfailing love. And as much as the Israelites Israelites participate in the song in verse 12 and 13 as they walked around Zion, as they counted her towers, considering and seeing the city of God to remember God's presence and protection there, what are we to do? We are to walk around, not the city, we are to walk around Jesus. Walk around the cross and see the nails through his hands. Go around our king and Count the thorns that make up his crown. Consider Jesus well and feel his love poured out for you. View Jesus, see Jesus again and again and again. Take a lap, take two, take a thousand and a thousand more. Know Jesus well. Know the gospel well. Drink deeply from this well daily. As you feel unsafe in this dangerous world, safety is only found in Christ. In the midst of this dangerous world, you will only remember that you are safe when you look upon Jesus. Cast your gaze upon him again and take refuge and know him well. Know him well to tell of him well. We sing Psalm 48 together, not only for ourselves, but for the ones to come too. As you examine and know Jesus more and more, as you know the nails on his, in his hands, the thorns on his cross, as you see his love, that cannot help but overflow to others. You wouldn't keep a cure to cancer to yourself. If you really thought it was that good, you would share it. Same too with Jesus. Um, know him well to tell of him well. 
to your friends and co-workers, to your basketball team, to your bosses, to your Discord chats, to all people, and of course, most directly in this passage, to your children. And even if you don't have biological children here at this church, there are children right here amongst us, right? We see the children of our church at the back upstairs in kids' church, and we treat them as part of our family, don't we? They are people to love and disciple, people to share the gospel with, people that you and I have a duty to love and share the gospel with, not just the ones who teach kids' church. What would it look like for you and I to do this well? Go back one, sorry. To know and know Jesus well and to tell of him well. How are you going at knowing Jesus well? Does your Bible reading need to change? Do you need to play in a Bible audiobook as you drive into work? Do you need to consider memorizing scripture so it sinks deep within you? Would writing about the passage you're reading help focus you? Should songs of praise echo through your house to remind you of Jesus? Perhaps we need to say no to some things to prioritize CG and church. What would it mean for you to know Jesus well, to go around him again and again and again? Secondly, how are you going at knowing Jesus well to tell of him well? Perhaps it's practicing sharing the normal things of your Christian faith and life, practicing doing that in front of a a mirror. (laughs) Perhaps with a friend here. Don't worry, we don't judge. Perhaps it's considering how to invest deeply in other people here, to the people on your left and maybe on your right. To be curious about those who are different to you here at church so that you might, might know how to share insightfully to them. How might you be creative in sharing the gospel with kids here at church? And if you're a parent, it might just mean keeping on with being faithful in reading Bible stories to your kids before they go to bed, even when you know you've had enough. What might it look like for us to know Jesus well, to tell of Jesus well? I'm about to pray and finish in just a second, but... I also know that today is a really special day. Some of our children are getting baptized in just a few minutes. You and I don't have a city to walk around like Israel did, but baptism and communion, they are the physical, visible symbols that Jesus has given us to look at and remember the safety, protection, and presence of God. As real as the water is, as real as the bread is, that's how real God's safety, protection, and presences with you today. As you see the water being poured over their heads, it symbolizes us dying with Christ, with Jesus. And as they come back up from the water, it promises us rising with Jesus. It reminds you and I where we are. We are in Christ. And so we are safe. And the children who get baptized today, we treat them as our family Come, take shelter with us here in the place of the Lord. Let's see their baptism and remember, where is safety to be found? Only in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that there is safety in Jesus.
Help us to take refuge in you and nowhere else. We pray that as we go into our schools, our family, workplaces, and friends, we pray that you would help us to remember that we are in Jesus, that we would know that there's nothing that we can face that day that we cannot tackle without God. Help us to know Jesus well, to tell of Jesus well. Help us to be thoughtful and intentional with both of these things. We take refuge in you now, Jesus, the safe place of the Lord. Amen.